In this episode of the Deming Institute podcast, David Langford, superintendent of Ingenium Charter Schools in Los Angeles, California, is our guest. David discusses moving from theory to practice using five areas unique to Ingenium. Hi, I'm Trip Babbitt, host of the Deming Institute podcast. Our guest today is David Langford, who is revisiting us from previous episodes he's done on education. Welcome, David. Thanks, Trip. I'm glad to be here again. Very good. Let's start out with what's been going on at Ingenium. I've kind of I've written down a few notes from our last episode that you and I did together last May, which was actually May of 2017. And uh, you had looked at this opportunity with Ingenium and being the superintendent there as an opportunity to innovate in education. And you mentioned a few things about what you were doing with emails and outside learning and speakers. You mentioned the fact that you weren't doing teacher evaluations. And so how's the experiment going, David? Uh, Well, I don't know if I did describe it as an experiment, but it's... uh, That's my word. No, you you didn't say that. that, That's my word. Yeah, it's just... uh, you know, just a bit of background for people that might be listening for the first time. So we have, currently we have six schools in L.A. and Compton. And I've been the superintendent for the last two years, and we've grown by two schools this year. So it's going pretty well. We're on target to have around 1,600 students between four schools. And one of the schools is an independent study school. So um, we'll have the opportunity to have students do lots of very independent projects and independent ways that they work and operate. So we're very excited about that. No, absolutely. So what does well look like in uh, the education world, especially for younger students? How would you evaluate what well looks like? I spend a lot of time really thinking about the basis of who we are, what is our strategic vision, those kinds of things. But mostly, you know, what is our constancy of purpose? and narrowed it down to restoring joy and, and uh, meaning to learning. And that has a, lot of, has a lot of meaning to everybody in our organization because it's all tied into our theory behind how we operate. But Dimming often talked about that, that people have a right to joy in their work, and we believe that's true for our employees, but students also have a, uh, also have a right to joy in learning. You know, how do you get that? It's not just playing games and, uh, you know, doing fun activities, although that's, that's a big part of things. It's uh, making sure that, uh, that whatever they're doing has deep-seated meaning. So whether that's math, science, English, whatever it might be, is it meaningful and relevant to them? And when you have that, you get a sense of deep joy in uh, the experience. And so if kids, kids are getting a lot of joy in what they're doing, quality of the work of what they're going to do is going to go up. The teacher is going to get more joy in what they're doing. Administrators going to get more joy in what they're doing and so on and so forth. And so that kind of forms the basis of how we think and operate at Ingenium. And we've also honed down what we call our praxis. The word praxis just means moving from theory into praxis. 
And so we've been become very explicit about how we operate and manage within that praxis, and it basically consists of five areas. So the first area is Dimming's SOPK, or System of Profound Knowledge. And so that forms the basis of how we make decisions, how we run as a system. Mm-hmm. Um, the second area of practice is intrinsic motivation. So, again, it's tied back to Dimming's work. Dimming was the first one that really rammed home the idea to me that, you know, you have to have intrinsic motivation or you don't really have any motivation going on. Third area of the practice is continual improvements. We use all the quality tools. We use some lean concepts. We use PDSA cycles for improvement, and that's a whole area in itself. Okay. Uh, the fourth area is neuro- neuroscience. So we want to make sure that all these things are back in neuroscience. And then the last area is what we call quality learning experiences, and that's actually how students learn. So learning experience. So so how do, how does this tie in 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 the uh, last episode, you mentioned and talked quite a bit about um, one th- thing that you felt was d- different in this uh, setting, this school, or these schools, was student involvement. And that you kind of, you'd mentioned in there that students are going out and finding applications. Is that this fifth thing in quality learning? Is that, is that what that's tied to, or is that a combination of things? Well, the, these Quality learning experiences or profound learning experiences we create, have created, and we've created a whole system around that for implementation. For me, it has to do with equity of experience. And so that's, that's all tied together because, you know, you may, a child may come to a school and they may get a teacher that's been teaching 15 years and then right across the hall, they may get somebody that's been teaching, this is their first year. Mm. And you can, you can imagine that there's going to be a difference in equity in terms of what people are going to get. So these uh, quality learning experiences that we're working on now are actually sort of packaged, project-based learning experiences that are very application-based. We take all the regular teaching standards that we're required to teach and kids are going to get tested on, but we fold them into a very meaningful, uh, powerful experience and in that experience, students have a lot of autonomy or intrinsic motivation in how they operate and how they work through that experience. And that uh, forms equity because now a new teacher coming in doesn't sort of have to reinvent the wheel all the time. They simply pick up the the learning experience that, that their students are supposed to be at that level. And now we're creating a whole library of these in. And uh, so, you know, teachers have choice, and they can sort of custom make them to students and modify it. And But each of those experiences is now packaged, and we're also developing our own software system that manages it called the Learning Experience Manager. And so that's becoming more and more robust every single year. Okay. And, and so this has been kind of one of my – pet projects that I've been working on, Dave, I'm going to ask this question around, but you, you mentioned the continual improvement tools, and but one of the things that I've really focused in on lately is the lack of people using statistical process control. Is that something that students are learning as part of those continual improvement tools? Um, what, how are you approaching that? Well, everything, everything we do, we do from the basically, uh, you might say it's top-down, but it's not in a traditional sense of 
of just telling people what to do from the top. It means mm-hmm. that if we're going to do something, first trial it at the top level, the executive council, the the cabinet level, we work through the all pro- process of how that works. That gets filtered down to teaching uh, administrators like principals and, and et cetera, and that, that gets filtered down into classrooms. Okay. So one of the I discovered is we didn't have good data sets. And now, uh, two years into it, we have tremendous dashboards. And all those dashboards are set up on the statistical process control. Even like I talked about Joy at Work, so we, we measure that every single month. We have just a simple survey that we ask every single employee, five different factors, and we monitor that in statistical control. And we look at separate schools, you know, is one school really down in one area or their joy at work is super low or is it a special cause or is it just random variation? And that just gives us continual feedback, sort of like a heartbeat monitor in a hospital. But now we've probably at least in their 12 dashboards and are continuing to develop others on the same basis of looking at long runs of data and trying to understand cycles what's happening so yes okay so you're using yeah okay that was what i was going to ask you're using at the administration level which makes perfect sense and i would expect that from you well the classroom is a bit different i mean we're dealing with uh kindergarten students through eighth grade okay through our schools and so we're not at this point really sort of directly training them for the workforce or going to manufacturing, going to jobs, et cetera. On the other hand, uh, the biggest thing that I, I want teachers and kids to understand in classrooms is process management. And so you go into classrooms, there'll be run charts, and it could be as simple as just monitoring the number of times that uh, students were blurting out during the day. Mm. And this is something maybe – that they're working on the class just simply to reduce the number. Well, they use that in, statist- in a statistical kind of thinking to see, okay, did we have one day where we had special causes and, you know, maybe there were 23 and then what's our average over time and then what's that run chart telling us over, say, the two-month period? And it's to me it's really amazing every time teachers do those kinds of things in the classroom. And I've seen fantastic ones in kindergarten classes. Well, they, they may be monitoring all kinds of things that, that are going on. But every time you put that kind of data up and you get everybody in a classroom involved in it, uh, there's a psychological thing that happens. The data just always gets better. Whether you make a change in the system or not, the, the people in the system, they, they just naturally want to see things get better. So they'll pay. And because you're monitoring that, looking at it, paying attention to it, you're communicating to people, oh, this is important, and, uh, you know, we need to get this right. So more than anything, we want to, we want kids just to understand variation and variability and what is that and what's a special cause and what's common cause. And, okay. and that makes a huge difference in how they work, think, talk, and act. So. Okay. Well, I would assume that that also makes a difference in the way the administration talks and acts. Uh, and looking at, at that dashboard that you've put together. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say I've had to look at some overall things that happened over the last couple of years is, is our whole organization has sort of calmed down. 
And I think that's largely because of this whole uh, system focus on understanding variability and statistical process control. And so when we do have a special cause, something happens, uh, you know, all hell doesn't break loose or people don't panic or get out of control. They just look at it as what it is or the vice versa. If something really, you know, maybe just a slight variation going on, uh, you know, so, sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. Mm. And so we're getting more and more people understanding that, you know, when is, when, when is it prudent to do nothing and when should you be doing something? Okay. All right. This is a, a question, David. I, I wish I would have asked it maybe uh, earlier in some of our earlier interviews, but uh, and it's more specific. I don't know that you've addressed this at all, but one of the things I've been trying to determine is if a student is, you know, let's say it's a classroom of 25 students, and how how do you identify someone who is an outlier? Uh, in that classroom, for instance, you know, if, if you have a test, I mean, it's, it's not a statistical process control chart. I was just curious how over the years you look at if there's testing, how, how do you, you identify an outlier? You know, if it's obvious somebody got 25 out of 100 and everybody else is getting 80, that would, that would be one. But, but how do you, how are you going about doing that type of evaluation in a classroom setting? Well, it's another problem in education is when you're basing everything on a yearly, one yearly test score, mm. and then then you're basically only comparing last year to this year. Did we do any better? Or, you know, where is this child in comparison? It doesn't give you really good data. So we had to come up with our own data processes that give us monthly, actually biweekly input about how people are doing, what you know, how they're operating, what's happening, are they getting things finished quickly, et cetera, et cetera. We're trying to create a system where people are not held back. You know, so you may have a group of students that are just really quick, flipping through their learning experiences, doing it very well and doing it to the quality standards that we require them to do. In a normal, traditional kind of situation, they would just have to sit and wait, basically, till rest of the class catches up. Where we now have the ability to those kids, basically, they get choices, so they can go on, they can go more, much more in depth on something. They could do some some kind of enrichment that they want to do, or sometimes they just elect to spend their time just helping other students reach the same level of performance. And uh, so, so to me, any of those are, are really great options. Okay. So if somebody's doing really well, it depends on how you would define well. Like you said, are they just good at taking tests? Right. But they're a very poor team member. You know, well, they they really need to spend a lot of time learning how to be a team and be a leader within the class. And, you know, there's lots of ways to to think about is somebody doing well other than just are they just getting into test scores. Okay. Yeah, I remember, and even some of our earlier conversations, you talked quite a bit about students helping each other, even, you know, in the classroom. If somebody's ahead, that, that, that they're helping a student. And, and I remember one story in particular you talked about, uh, where one student explained something to another one that was a little bit behind, and you, you were like, well, that, <laughs> that, I don't think that's going to be help that, this person. And it did, you know, that there's that, 
is that the type of environment that you would see in the classrooms and at Genium today too? Yeah, and we're, we're constantly promoting that. Of course, every year you're getting a whole new batch of kids that don't know our system, don't know how to work in that. Mm. But, uh, you know, we try to interview kids one month, two months in, kind of find out, you know, what do you see different here than the other schools that you're at? And we get some interesting answers. I mean, kids will often say things like, uh, everybody's nice to each other here. Uh, nobody's yelling at me here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel safe here. I don't feel like I have any enemies. I just feel like I have all friends. Those kinds of statements are really powerful to me because if kids feel really safe in that kind of environment, they're going to feel safe to take risks and reach levels of quality that they just normally wouldn't even try to reach. Right. Okay. Just switch it up a little bit here. You talked about you know these five things, and one I wanted to go back to was the neuroscience piece. What are you guys doing with neuroscience? <laughs> What's going on there? Well, we have a saying we use just because neuroscience. <laughs> okay. So we, we use it as a basically a research tool because the, the number one organ in your body responsible for thinking is the brain. And we need to know, uh, you know, as much about the brain as some neuroscientists know about, especially when it's tagged directly to learning. We do a lot of training, a lot of research in neuroscience trying to really understand, you know, what's going on. We don't adopt just programs that are out floating around uh, that don't have a strong basis in neuroscience about how people actually learn to think and how thinking actually happens in the, in the human brain. But I'd say, you know, it's a constant journey, and we're, we're always, and we're even helping kids understand how their brains work. Uh, some teachers are much better at it than others, but the focus in classrooms, too, is, and it sort of gets kids to have what I call an out-of-body experience. They're able to sort of just kind of step out of their situation and see it for what it is and then step back into it and, and make a real conscious decision about what they're going to do in that kind of a situation. But to me, it's very powerful. And schools that are not focused on neuroscience as the basis of, for, of what they're doing and why they're doing it often get way, way off track, and they start monitoring and collecting data on things that, to me, are just the wrong things to collect data on. There's quite a bit going on in in the world of neuroscience. It's something I've been trying to spend some time reading on and and learning and research. It seems like they're still at kind of the beginning of this. It looks like a lot of the research has been done, especially in the last 10 years. How are you keeping up with all the... Uh, <laughs> and I would mention in education, you guys are, you know, able to to, to be plugged into a lot of this stuff. But I'm just, I would, I'm more curious about how you stay plugged in. I have a, a number of researchers that I re- I know really well, and, and constantly checking back with them and talking about things and how things go on. We do book studies where we look at things. Um, Teachers are now getting much more information on neuroscience. Just almost every conference you go to has sessions on neuroscience, and we encourage people to bring that back to us and find out what that is. But it's not a, it's not a, like you said, it's not a finite kind of thing because when I look at what we know and understand about how brains 
learn information today versus 10 years ago, it's like moving from the dark ages. Yeah. There's just so much more that we know now, but 10 years from now, it's going to be the same thing. So, you know, it's, it's a continual improvement process, a never ending journey of just continually keep understanding new nuances, new ways things happen. And, and understanding that affects how you manage behavior. So people that have behavior management programs is probably the absolute worst thing you can do because 99% of behavior is coming from the system itself. And so until you're analyzing, okay, what are we doing in the system that's causing kids to have bad behavior, uh, you're, not, you're never going to get anywhere. You'll, you start to spend all your time in punishment and reward systems. Mm. And so mm. neuroscience tells you that those things don't work. You'll get compliance in the moment. You'll get somebody to do something if you make the reward high enough or the punishment strong enough. You can force compliance on anything. But uh, next week, you'll probably have the exact same problem you had this week. You haven't actually changed the neuroscience of somebody's behavior. So to change a habit pattern, we use kind of the rule of thumb of a minimum of about 19 days. So if you want to, if you have a child acting out in a certain way, you have to commit yourself to be consistent at, uh, um, at working with them for at least 19 days, some kids as long as a year, to change that neural structure in their mind. Unless you're changing that neural structure, you're not actually doing anything. Mm. From a neuroscience uh, standpoint, I, I remember in the last episode that we talked, you, you had mentioned that you were getting outside speakers and learning and, and that type of thing. Is is that what most of the outside speakers and learning is, or are there other things that you've uh, gotten into? I know neuroscience has, has been up at the forefront of a lot of the things that you've talked about over the past several years, actually, um, maybe even decade. But are there other things that are that you're seeing on the horizon that kind of got your attention that you think, uh, you know, someone in education ought to be looking at? Uh, well, that's why I mentioned the five things about our practice right. to begin with. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless you really have a, a framework or an understanding of who you are and what you're about, then then you're just going to follow any, any trend that comes down the path. So it's not that, you know, our staff doesn't go out to conferences and, you know, encounter new things that are coming on coming out but when they bring those back we always apply that to okay so for what problem is that a solution here Hmm. you know maybe you know the greatest new shiny thing that somebody's come up with and isn't this wonderful and they can they can even have data that shows oh look at the results you get when you do x but it could that it's contrary to neuroscience about what really helps kids learn, and you're getting a result in the system. To me, it's what I call the false result based on sort of false practices. So that's why, like, the system of profound knowledge helps us make decisions about those things, you know. Is this a systems change? What's going to be the psychological effect of people? Exactly what is this theory uh, involved here, and those those things, you know, helped us really evaluate. You know, this sounds like a really good idea, but it's it's not going to be a benefit here. 
Okay. But I'd say in our schools, you don't see a lot of new stuff coming all the time, but you do see a lot of people going deeper and deeper and deeper into what we're already doing. So the five areas I mentioned, those are not programs. They're ways of thinking or they're, they're areas of focus that we continually keep educating people on about, okay, here's how to make good decisions about what you do and how you do it versus adopting a program and set that says, okay, step one, step two, step three, and uh, or a best practice that was developed someplace else that may have nothing to do with our population and our students. Okay. Um, and just to mention those five areas again, I had a uh, system of profound knowledge as the first area. The second was about tr- in, intrinsic motivation. The third was continual improvement tools and methods. The fourth was neuroscience, and the fifth was quality learning. And any other comments with regards to those five things? Well, only that each one of them, like I mentioned, SLPK helps us with management both in classrooms and managing organization. Intrinsic motivation really sends the message that we're not an extrinsic motivation kind of system. So we don't want people using a lot of punishments and reward kinds of practices, even in a classroom, and we're not going to do that to employees either. So it sends a very strong message within that. And then the difference is, well, what do you, how do you operate differently? Well, continual improvement gives you the tools and processes and PDSA to actually make the changes you want versus just copying somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then neuroscience is the basis of it, but then how does that look in the classroom? Well, those are the quality learning experiences or the profound experiences that we collect in the classroom. And then we're constantly studying those to see and curating them to make sure that they're at the highest levels we can possibly get them. So, Okay. Um, and my last question is the typical one, which is, is there anything that you talked about that you'd like to uh, give some clarification on, or is there anything that I failed to ask that you wished I would have? <laughs> no, not necessarily. It's just that it's, it's, it's a journey. And I think I mentioned in the last interview that we did, when I took over this school system, I was pleasantly surprised at how easy it was to make decisions because I knew Deming's system of profound knowledge, because I had continual improvement tools and processes to get a lot of people's input quickly. And so all of that aided in and is continuing to aid in transforming the organization at a pretty fast rate. So the people that have come to visit us often are pretty surprised at how much has been accomplished in just a couple of years. So. Very We're very cool. excited about that. Very cool. Well, we plan to uh, continue to get updates from you, David, uh, on your journey and what's going on in the school system as we move forward. But we appreciate you sharing your time, and I know things have gotten busier for you, so all the more. Thanks. So in the future, yeah, I hope to bring on some of our staff to help. Oh, yeah. How transformation as well, so. That would be an interesting journey. Yeah, absolutely. It would be interesting to hear how uh, other like teachers and other administrators view it, too. It might be a little difficult to get a kindergartner on there, though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Trip. Thank you for listening to the Deming Institute podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the 2018 25th Anniversary Conference in Manhattan Beach, California, go to www.deming.org 
and click on events.